And if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21. Numbers, chapter 21. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, I think it's page 134. And so we've been spending our summer in the book of James, and we're not finished with that. Uh, But today is the day that we have set aside as a church to, to celebrate the Lord through the Lord's Supper. And so I wanted my whole message time really to focus on that and help to focus our attention on the wonder and the value and the the special opportunity we have to worship the Lord in uh, in this Lord's Supper, in this peculiar way that he's given to us uh, to remember uh, what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done for us. And so we come to Numbers chapter 21 and here we see played out in the pages of scripture, something that we've heard people say throughout our lives, a picture is worth a thousand words. Have you ever heard that? Well, I think that certainly is true because in Numbers chapter 21, we have a historic event described to us uh, happened about 3,400 years ago. It happened just as the scripture describes it. But it's a, it's, a, it's a historic event where the history is not what makes it special to us. It is the picture of something even greater than, than the history that we see when we study this passage. It is a picture of something that is beautiful and amazing. It is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to read Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, and I'll make some comments as we go through this passage, let you know sort of the setting that we find ourselves in. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. So the journey that they're on is, is a difficult journey. They were slaves in Egypt. God freed them from that slavery. He brought them right up to the edge of a land that he had promised to them for generations. He brought them right up to the edge, but they didn't have enough faith. They didn't have enough trust in God to go into the promised land that he had provided. And so as a result, God has now sent them to the desert as a form of punishment for a number of years, for 40 years in fact, until God is going to eventually give them another opportunity, a second opportunity to go into the promised land. When we come to Numbers chapter 21, we are at the beginning of that 40-year journey through the desert, and the people aren't happy. The people are struggling. The people are suffering. What they forget, though, is that they're suffering primarily because of their own sin and their lack of trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water and we detest this wretched food. Now as people who get negative tend to do, they're exaggerating the situation. In fact, they're outright lying about it. Uh, they, they, they say that they were better off in Egypt when that certainly was not the case. Egypt was a miserable place. In fact, every time the Israelites got upset about something, they would accuse Moses of bringing them out of Egypt into the desert so that they would die. This is the eighth time they've accused Moses of the very same thing, and it's foolishness. Moses, God had rescued the people through Moses from this terrible situation in Egypt and brought them freedom. But they go on in this verse to say that we don't have any food and we don't have any water. That wasn't true either. 
They may not have had an abundance of water, but they had water and they had food. In fact, they even mentioned that the food that they had after they said they had no food, that their food was detestable. Now, the food that they're talking about is the manna, the bread from heaven that God is sending down. And they're even saying that the bread from heaven is detestable. You know, when somebody gets just critical about something, it is hard for them to ever really see the truth because the problem is not in their environment, it's in their heart. And these people needed a heart change. They were griping and complaining and they were guilty of this sin. So look what God does in verse six. It says, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. We believe this was the carpet viper. Uh, they, it was a snake with, uh, with red markings on its back. Could have been why they called it a fiery snake. Uh, it was a, uh, a very dangerous, a, a very venomous snake. Uh, the bite would burn. Perhaps that's why they called these fiery serpents. It would bring paralysis and death. And so all of a sudden, out of the sand, can you imagine this? They're walking through the desert, and out of the sand come thousands, maybe tens of thousands of these snakes just materialize out of the sand, start biting people. People start dying left and right. Imagine the screech. Imagine the, 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 the shouts. Imagine the horror as this, as this is unfolding. So look what happens in the next verse. Verse seven, the people then came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that we will take the snakes, so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And so the people recognized that the snakes were because of their sin. There was a connection between their sin and the bites of the snakes. And so they confessed their sin and asked Moses to pray for them, and he does. And then look at verse 9. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might not seem so. It, it seems like a terrible picture, but it's not. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus referred to this two different times, at least two times in his ministry, and said, look back to what happened as it's described in Numbers 21 and see this beautiful picture of what God does through Jesus. And so today, very simply, I want us to go back through this picture. I want us to discern some of these thousand words, and I want us to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, for many of you, much of this will be old hat. I hope it stretches your understanding of the gospel just a little bit. But for many people, you've heard this before. You know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer this morning is that as we retell the story, that you would just in a, in a fresh way, be amazed again at what Jesus has done for us. I think sometimes this just becomes uh, something that fades into the background. It, it loses its excitement. We just ought to be amazed at what Jesus has done. And my prayer, if this is familiar to you this morning, is that God would rekindle in your life an amazement at what Jesus has done for us. I think about that hymn that we sing from time to time, Catherine uh, Hanke hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. Do you know that hymn? I, I won't sing it for you, but I'll recite some lines. It says, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, 
of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And so if you're familiar with the gospel, I just want to tell the story once again. And I want us to rejoice uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know the gospel, this is a good day for you to be here. Because today, as plainly as we can, we want to tell you the wonderful news of how Jesus, how his sacrifice offers forgiveness for all our sins and a relationship with the Father. And I can't wait to show you this in Numbers chapter 21. So let's notice four things about the gospel that we can learn from this historic event. Four things about the gospel that we can learn. Number one, we see that the gospel is a necessary plan. Uh, What we have here, this plan described to us in verse nine, the bronze serpent, the pole, the whole thing, it was a necessary plan. Now here's what I mean by that. The people uh, were, were, were hopeless. All of a sudden, all of these snakes appear, they begin to bite people, there's nowhere that they can run, they can't get up on a rock, snakes can climb rocks, there's nowhere to go to, there's no anti-venom, there, there's no hope. They're being bit by these snakes, two million Israelites and the snakes are just beginning to take their toll amongst the people and everybody's running around crazy, there's no solution to the problem. They had no hope unless there was some divine remedy that was brought to them. Do you see that? They, they needed a plan. This wasn't an option. This wasn't a convenience. Had it not been for God's intervention, every one of those Israelites would have died in the desert. It was necessary that they had a plan. They were hopeless without a plan. Well, church, the same thing is true of us. While we don't have a problem with snakes for the most part, we have a problem with sin. And the venom of these snakes in Numbers chapter 21 represents the penalty of the sin that's in our lives. We're guilty of sin. And the sin in our lives is ever bit as dangerous as the snakes that the Israelites faced. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. You and I, apart from some divine remedy that's going to be sent our way, you and I too are going to die. We are hopeless. There's nowhere we can run. There's nothing we can do. There's no human antidote that's going to solve this problem. We, like these Israelites, are desperate for a necessary plan, for for a divine intervention to come our way. We're as hopeless as they were hopeless But just as God provided a plan for them, God has provided a plan for us. The plan was necessary for them. It was their only hope. The plan was necessary, is necessary for us. It's our only hope. Now, I'm not sure we're convinced of that. And I think one of the reasons why many people reject the gospel, why many people reject Christ is because they're they're just not convinced that we are as hopeless those Israelites in the snake pit of a desert. We, we think that some way God's going to, you know, sneak us through. 
We, we think that maybe our sins deserve a slap on the wrist or, or, or maybe our, our sins would deserve a little bit of punishment, but my sins aren't that bad. They don't deserve death. And we think that somehow we're the exception. But listen, biblically, we're not. We can't be. And just as those snakes were biting and killing the Israelites, so sin bites and kills everybody who's guilty, and that is all of us. And the reason why so many people never respond to the gospel is because we're just not convinced of that. I was at a community event this week. I was at a a couple of community events this week, and at one of them, somebody gave a speech. A man gave a speech, and he said something in his speech like this. He was referring to somebody, and I don't even remember who he was referring to, but he was referring to someone who had recently died. And he said, if that person, if that man didn't get into heaven, then none of us are going to get there. And then everybody laughed. And you've heard people say that before in speeches. That's a common thing to say. I cringed though. And I know the speaker was speaking colloquially and not theologically. The speaker probably has just as good an understanding of uh, the gospel as I do. I'm not being critical of the speaker's uh, you know, spirituality or even his theology. But, uh, but that, that's really a crazy thing to say, that, that if that person is not good enough to get to heaven, then none of us are. And, and, and I think the, the laughter of the people just betrays the fact that, that if we just spoke the truth, a lot of us think our sin's just not quite that bad that there are some people who are good enough, some people who are caring enough and loving enough and sacrificial enough that they're going to go to heaven on their own merit. And as soon as we think that somebody can get to heaven on their merit, we quickly think that we can get to to heaven on our merit. I mean, the truth is we are as hopeless as those people in the desert If God did not send them some divine intervention, they would have died. And if God does not intervene for us, we will die as well. How would you like to have been in that snake pit of a desert that day? I know for many of us, for me included, that would just be the worst nightmare. Snakes just coming out of the sand everywhere. Listen, there is one advantage, though, that people in that snake pit of a desert had over you and I. What, what advantage do they have over us? Well, I guarantee you everybody in that desert that day understood the urgency of the problem, right? No, nobody had to go around and convince those people, we've got a problem. Nobody had to sound the alarm, right? The problem is that we're in the same situation. The penalty of sin 100% of the time is death. But we don't recognize the urgency. We think it doesn't really matter or there's plenty of time. They had an advantage. They understood the urgency. I pray that God would remind us that just as they were in danger, we are in danger because the wages of sin is always death. And so the first way we see the gospel in this story is, is, is that the gospel is a necessary plan. Those people necessarily had to have a solution. And so do we, but then secondly, and this is the good news part of the plan. It was an unanticipated plan. What happened there in the desert to rescue those people was not anticipated by anybody in the desert. 
I, I can imagine when the snakes began to appear that the leaders amongst the Israelites would have started to try to figure out a plan. I mean, that's what a leader does. He sees the problem or she sees the problem and tries to figure out a solution. And so I'm sure that there were some trying to figure out how they could get away from the snakes. Is there some way to get away from the snakes? Can you run from the snakes? Can you climb? And, and, and there was no solution, but I'm sure somebody was trying to figure that out. Somebody was pr probably trying to figure out how they could treat the snake bites. Is there some herb that we can give? Or is there some, is there some potion that would slow down the, uh, the, the, the poison as it, as it moved through the body? That, that, that was impossible, but somebody I'm sure was considering that. Somebody might have tried to fight the snakes. Maybe that's the strategy. We need to fight the snakes, but you know that doesn't work. By the way, just as an aside, two or three weeks ago, has this ever happened to you? You just, you just bored and you end up on the internet just following wherever it goes. And I ended up on a on a website that listed all of the snake bite deaths in the United States in the last 20 years. And so I just started, I don't even know how I got there, but I started going through here and I, a couple of observations might be helpful to you. Number one, there were hardly any women on the list. And I think that's patently unfair. <laughs> now somebody could could come away from that and conclude that women are just smarter than men and they stay away from the snakes. But there's got to be a different explanation. And I'm still working on it. Now, the second thing I noticed is because it listed the name of the person and when they died. And, but then it had a sentence or two describe what the situation was. And in about 80% of the situations where somebody in America actually dies of a snake bite, it was a man trying to fight the snake. So men, don't fight the snake. Now, I imagine that some of these Israelites thought, well, that's, that's going to be the solution. We're going to fight the 10,000 snakes away, and that certainly wouldn't have worked. Somebody might have uh, tried to come up with some other scheme. The, the point is this. There was no worldly way to defeat the snakes. The only hope they had was this unanticipated, I'm sure this didn't cross anybody's mind, this, this brilliant, this unanticipated plan that we will make a golden or a bronze serpent. We'll put it on a pole. We'll raise it above the people and we'll draw the people's attention and through that, God will bring forgiveness and we'll tell you how in just a moment. But you see, that, that didn't cross anybody's mind. When they saw the snakes, nobody said, where's the pole? This, this was an unanticipated plan. Now, let's talk about our situation. And so we're, we're hopelessly lost in our sins. And, and, and what are we going to do? And people have been trying to figure it out for years. And so we've, we've proposed education. If we could just educate people enough, they would stop sinning. But that hadn't worked. We, we thought if we could just have good enough rehabilitation, we could get people out of their sin. That doesn't work. We thought maybe we could inspire people to try harder, but that hasn't worked. We, we thought maybe we could punish people and scare people away from their sins, but nothing that we have done as a human race has curtailed the societal sin or the personal sin that we see all around us. But God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty has come up with a plan that nobody could anticipate. A plan that involved his son, a plan that involved a pole, and a plan that involved a crucifixion. And, and, and nobody could have anticipated this plan. That's the amazing thing about this. It's a completely unanticipated plan that God has provided so that people's sins could be forgiven. Let, let me let Jesus describe the plan. 
In John chapter 3, everybody knows John 3.16, right? You know that verse? But a lot of people don't know that that verse is really about this snake story in Numbers 21. Did you know that? We're always quoting John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about the snake story. So let me read this passage to you, and I think I can show it to you on the screen, and we'll read it in context. We'll start with verse 14 instead of verse 16. Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you see what Jesus says? Jesus says, I'm just like that snake in the desert. And, and when, when the snake was lifted and people looked at it, that snake drew away the power of the venom in the people. He said, when I am crucified and put on a pole and lifted high, and when I bleed and I die, that, that I will take away the penalty of the sin of all who will look to me. What an amazing plan that God would send his son, a perfect sinless son, and that his son would die and would be raised up on a cross or a pole and he would take away from us the penalty of our sin just as, just as the snake took away the, the power of the venom uh, that affected the people. And so this is an unanticipated plan. And by the way, it precludes all of the world's plans. Uh, God's plan is not only unanticipated and necessary, but it precludes the world's plan. L listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the only way. And so this shows us the gospel of Christ. The third way it shows us the gospel of Christ is it shows us it is a sufficient plan. It is a sufficient plan. Now, if we go back and look at the story of the bronze serpent, I want you to notice three things. The cure, when they held the serpent up, the cure was available to everybody, right? The cure was available to everybody. Anybody who would look upon the snake, the bronze snake on the top of the pole, anybody who looked at it, the cure was available to them. It was sufficient in that sense. Anybody who looked. The second way it was sufficient is that the cure worked on everyone who availed themselves of the solution. Now that sounds like the same thing, but let me tell you how it's different. It didn't matter how sick the person was. It didn't matter if they had been bit by one snake or 10 snakes. It didn't matter if they were at the very beginning, a snake had just bit them and the venom was just beginning to course through their body or they were taking their last breath. It didn't matter how sick they were. The, the serpent, the bronze serpent was sufficient for the cure. And then third, the cure worked instantly. This wasn't a cure that, that just gave them a second chance and then they had to go and get further treatment and, and work out some problems and exercise and eat vegetables and eventually they might get better. No, the cure was instant, instant. Now, how is that a picture of the gospel? Well, it is a picture of the gospel. First of all, because the gospel is available to anyone. 
Anybody can turn to Jesus on the pole, on the cross. Anybody can surrender to him and be saved. Isn't that amazing? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The second way it is sufficient, the gospel is sufficient, is because it's sufficient for every sinner. No matter who you are, no matter what your sin is, no matter how long you've sinned or how badly you've sinned, whether the world would put you in the category of not very sinful or the world would say you're the most sinful person in Nacogdoches, the gospel, the cross, is sufficient to forgive your sins. Isn't that amazing? It is also sufficient because it brings immediate forgiveness. It's instant. It's instant. This isn't... You come to God and you look upon the cross and he, he, he doesn't forgive you. He just gives you a little bit more time to go and work off some of your, some of your sin. It gives you, gives you a chance you can go and really do well for a few years. And if you, if you can hit all of God's marks, if you can live well enough, then eventually God will accept you. No, it's instant. When we turn to the cross, he forgives all of our sins. Now, there's work that God's going to do that's going to take the rest of our lives, but we are immediately adopted into the family of God. It is a sufficient plan. We, we see from this, from this historical event that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. And then the final thing, we see that it's a personal plan. When you look back at the serpent, who had, this is a trick question, but who had to look at the serpent the bronze serpent, in order to be cured of their snake bite. The person who was bitten. What I'm trying to say is that you couldn't look on somebody else's behalf. You couldn't look on your child's behalf. A child couldn't look on mama's behalf. You couldn't look on behalf of your husband. See, if you were bitten, you had to look at the, at the snake on the pole yourself. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, we have to look upon Jesus ourselves. We have to trust Jesus ourselves. You're not a Christian because you're associated with people who, who are children of God. You're not a Christian because your, your mother is a child of God or your spouse is a child of God. As, as people have said, God has no grandchildren. You ever heard that phrase before? You know, grandchildren. If you have grandchildren, they're, they're not really yours. I mean, they, they're, they're yours, but because you're connected with somebody and they're connected to the same person, right? That's, that's how they're your grandchildren. Well, it never works that way to God. Either you have a personal connection with God, you have looked to the cross yourself and trusted what Jesus has done for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You have repented and surrendered your life to him or you haven't. It's a, it's a personal plan. It, it's interesting when you, when you read books about religions, uh, oftentimes they will count how many people are of different faiths. There's this many people uh, are Christians and this many people are Muslims and this many people are Hindus. You ever wondered how they come up with those numbers? And there's a lot of different ways they do that, but generally they just count people by region. They would just say, well, everybody that lives in America is a Christian, and everybody that lives in Pakistan is a Muslim, and everybody that lives in India is Hindu, or, or you know, however that works. They just count by region. But that's not how God counts. Jesus has been lifted high on the cross, and it's only those people who look for themselves 
and put their faith and trust in Jesus to surrender individually to him that know the forgiveness, that know the cure for the wages of sin is death. That's how we see the gospel in Numbers chapter 21. So what must we do? Well, we must look at Jesus on the cross just like these Israelites looked at the serpent on the pole. First, they looked with desperation. They understood that their only hope is they saw the snakes around them. They knew their only hope was that snake on the, on the pole. We, we have to have the same attitude. My only hope is Jesus. We have to look with desperation. We have to look with wonder. They were amazed that somehow that, that bronze snake on a pole would, would take away the power of the venom in their bodies. We have to look to Jesus with that same wonder that, that the Son of God would absorb the penalty for the sin in my life. And then finally, they looked with thanksgiving. They were thankful that God had provided a plan and they surrendered to that plan and it was indicated by their gazing up at, uh, at, the, at the bronze serpent. We have to be thankful for the, for the plan that God has given to us and we must surrender to Jesus by looking to him. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. We're gonna have a brief time of invitation and I wanna challenge you to do a couple of things. First of all, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are a child of God, Will you just, while we sing, will you just marvel again at how good God is to us? How wonderful the plan is. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to be standing here at the front as we sing and some other ministers will join me. Would you just step out from where you are and come and take somebody's hand and personally and privately say, today, for the first time, I am looking to the cross. I am looking to the cross because I know that my sin deserves death. My only hope is to surrender to Christ. Father, work through us. May your Holy Spirit speak powerfully in us so that we will respond with amazement and surrender. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.